This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Roughly a third or a quarter of the electricity that runs California's homes and businesses now comes from renewable sources, solar, wind, and geothermal. That will rise to one half in the next 15 years, making California one of the cleanest economies in the country. But clean energy advocates say Governor Brown and the California legislature could be more ambitious and shoot for 100% clean electricity. That is technologically possible, they say, and would help fight climate disruption that is amplifying, amplifying but not causing, severe droughts, floods, and fires around the state and country. Over the next hour, we will explore California's clean energy push with our live audience here in San Francisco. We have three guests on the program who are deeply involved in this debate. Mark Farron is a member of the California System Operator, Independent System Operator. That's the agency that runs the electric grid that powers our toys and toasters and just about everything else in our connected lives. He's a former member of the California Public Utility Commission, and in disclosure, he's a donor to Climate One. Mark Jacobson is professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford. He's on the board of the Solutions Project, a group advocating for 100% clean energy across America. The group is backed by Google Chairman Eric Schmidt's Family Foundation and actor-activists Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo. Steve Malnight is Senior Vice President at PG&E, California's largest electric utility. He's pinch-hitting here today for PG&E President Geisha Williams, who will join us another evening for, on a future date for another conversation. Please welcome them to Climate One. Mark Jacobson, 100%, it sounds like a big, hairy, audacious goal. Tell us how California could get there. Well, we've been developing plans for states, all 50 states, in fact, and now 139 countries, and California in particular. And and these plans are to convert each state to 100% renewable energy, not only for electricity, but also transportation, heating, cooling, industry, agriculture, forestry, and fishing. And the idea is to electrify everything. If you electrify everything, the first thing that happens is you reduce power demand. In California, that's about 44% reduction of power demand. And that's because electricity is much more efficient than combustion. So, for example, an electric car, it's 80 to 86% of the electricity goes to move the car, and the rest is waste heat. heat. In a gasoline car, only 17 to 20% of the energy in gasoline goes to move the car, and the rest is waste heat. But you not only reduce uh, power demand by converting to electricity uh, due to the efficiency of electricity, but also because you no longer have to mine and refine and transport fossil fuels, there's an energy reduction there as well, and there's end-use energy efficiency improvements. In California, that's 44% reduction of power demand by electrifying. And then you provide all that electricity with clean, renewable wind, water, and solar, onshore and offshore wind, solar rooftop PV, and power plant PV, photovoltaics, that is, concentrated solar power with storage, some geothermal power, 
uh, existing hydroelectric power and small amounts of tidal and wave. And we found that you can do this in California, use less than a, uh, half a percent of the state's land area for what we call footprint on the ground, for mostly for solar at the utility scale, and about one and a half percent of the land area for wind, onshore wind, and we can power the entire state, and then we have offshore wind too, but in terms of land area, not using much land, we can power the entire state at a similar or lower direct cost, but we'd re reduce the social cost or the health and climate cost by about 60% uh, for Californians and create jobs in the process and uh, create energy stability forever. Steve Melnight, you're in the electrical business, electrify everything. You probably agree with that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, how about the, the, the other part of that it can be done at 100% is doable and fairly soon? Well, I think it definitely meets the definition of a big, hairy, audacious goal, um, a BHAG for all of us. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it is the right kind of thing for us to be talking about, to set out those aggressive goals. We've, you know, at PG&E, we've been extremely focused on the challenge of how we in California lead on climate, how we lead the way. Um, I think we've been uh, very supportive of that. And in, when you look at the electric sector today, you're already seeing a transformation happening in the electric sector today with, uh, with the 30% renewables and, that we deliver, 50% uh, GHG-free. That's, that's only increasing over time. It's getting cleaner and cleaner. Uh, that can be done, and we're, we're demonstrating that here today. So, uh, you know, I think from the perspective of, of can we do it, you know, I have confidence that over time we can accomplish a lot of these kinds of things, and these are the right kinds of discussions for us to have. The question at the end of the day is how do we make sure we're achieving the climate goal that we really have straight and center in front of us. And, you know, I think, Mark, your, your point is we can't just look at the electric sector today. In California, that's really only about 20% of the emissions. You know, 80% of, of the carbon emissions in the state are from all the other sectors outside of the electric sector. We've got to make sure we address transportation. We've got to make sure we can address the industrial uses. Um, and those really are the biggest challenges we have in front of us today. So, you know, I think we've proven in California we can accomplish some amazing things, and technology can come along and help support it. So, um, you know, I'm all, for, I'm all for giving it a go. Um, we'll have to see how we get there and what the best choices are for California and for our society to make sure we keep making the progress we need to. So it sounds like you two agree on direction. Is the difference over pace? When, Mark Jacobson, when do you think that 100% can happen in California? Well, our goal is to get 80% by 2030 and 100% by 2050. Um, Governor Brown is at 50% in the electricity sector by 2030, so he's about 60% of our goal. So 35. Uh, Steve Melnight, is that realistic? 100% by, by 2050? So we're really focused on making sure we can achieve the 50% goals the governor's laid out, which is already incredibly ambitious. But beyond that... We're focused and we've already committed to go beyond it, to go to 55% renewables with uh, the transition away from Diablo Canyon um, and to continue that march forward. Whether it's feasible by that time, I'm not exactly sure. It's been a big challenge to get here, but the point is we've got to keep making the progress. Mark Fair and the, the utilities always say, oh, it's going to be hard, it's going to take longer, but they, they oftentimes get to those goals faster uh, than, pe than people anticipated five years ago. So what do you think about 100% by 2050? Well, I, I think uh, uh, I agree with, with Mark that uh, that's the kind of goal that we, we should be setting out. Um, but it is, uh, it is a complicated uh, exercise. Uh, so I think we have, um, like Steve, we have, we, uh, have focused very much on the near-term goal, which is uh, the 2030 50% uh, renewable portfolio standard. And uh, I'm very confident that we're going we're gonna, to uh, meet that. In fact, uh, I expect that we should, we should beat that whether it's 55 or 60% uh, is not clear. Um, but
But I think that's really, we have to put it in the context, that is essential if we're going to get to what we need to do in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So um, 50% renewable is just barely on the edge of being consistent with a 40% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030 from the 1990 levels, which is what, what scientists tell us we need to do to, to, to keep uh, the, the impact of climate change um, uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a manageable level. Uh, now, going beyond that gets much more difficult. And uh, it's because um, we are very reliant on fossil fuels, in California in particular, natural gas, for um, making up for the intermittency and the variability of renewables. And that is a tricky engineering exercise to, to, uh, to get around. So as you think about, if you do the math, 50% renewable energy plus hydro, et cetera, you get to somewhere around 25% natural gas, which is very low. And going below that um, really does raise some questions about reliability of the system. Mark Jacobson, the sun doesn't shine at night. The wind uh, doesn't really blow in the day. So the, uh, it's, the renewable power is not always there. We, to run the economy of this state, we need electricity always there. What's your solution to that? Yeah, well, we've solved that problem in theory because when you electrify all sectors, you suddenly have, everything is electricity, including heating, cooling, industry. And so you can now use heat storage, which is low cost, and cold storage to reduce electricity use. For example, Stanford University, the university I work at, They've had an ice cube under a building since 1998. So at night, when electricity prices are low, they use the electricity to create ice. So that during the day, instead of using electricity during peak times of the day in the afternoon, they run water through tubes in the ice and cools the water that that was used to cool buildings. So they reduce peak time electricity demand. It's really ideas like this, where you combine heat and cold and with electricity, low-cost electricity storage in... Uh, pumped hydroelectric power, existing hydroelectric power is, uh, is a big battery. Concentrated solar power is one-tenth the cost of batteries. And then in using other types of heat storage, such as in rocks, which is only a dollar a kilowatt hour compared to $300 a kilowatt hour for batteries, you can actually solve the problem. We showed this over the whole United States. We did a paper that was published uh, last year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences where we examined, is it possible for with 100% power for all sectors being clean renewables in the whole U.S., is it possible to keep the grid stable? And we found that it was at a cost similar to the cost of fossil fuels. Steve Melnight, mm-hmm. uh, there's a difference between academic theory and, and practice and industry. So do you think that some of those uh, theories that are, are practical now in the industry and can, can scale up? Well, I mean, as Mark said, I think that there already are a lot of innovative technologies that are being used by customers every day. Thermal storage is, is something that is out there. It's available. As Mark said, it's been been used uh, and being used every day today. You know, I, I think that from my perspective, um, one of the things that Mark said is really important. It is a, it's going to take all options to come onto the table. And we do have to translate theory to practice. We have to be able to prove them out um, in, in actual practice on the grid. And, uh, you know, that really needs to be our focus, is making sure that these new technologies that show the promise, um, that we move them out of the theory uh, through the lab and into commercial scale and into practice, then we'll know how they all work. Mark Farron, uh, Diablo Canyon is the last remaining uh, nuclear power plant in the state. It's about 9% of the state's electricity. It's going to be shut down in seven or eight years. Uh, there's quite a debate about whether nuclear should be part of the future of America, uh, carbon-free energy. Uh, that, that's already decided. But uh, the question is, can renewables really fill that void reliably? What do you think right now? 
Uh, well, I think uh, the, the case of Diablo Canyon is very different than the case of San Onofre in Southern California. Um, uh, San Onofre went out kind of without any warning. Okay, there was a there was a minor radiation leak, and it was decided that the plant needed to be shut down, and that did lead to an increase in emissions uh, uh, in the in the immediate turn uh, in Southern California. Totally different situation with Diablo Canyon because of. Um, uh, careful planning by PG&E and others, uh, I, th- I think uh, um, we're all feeling pretty confident that we can replace the power, we can replace it uh, on a carbon-neutral basis, uh, and that it's the right thing to do. Um, Other parts of the country, there are nuclear power plants. A lot of the licenses are being extended. Plants are already built. They're producing carbon-free electricity today. Do you think that those plants ought to continue uh, nationwide, that the ones that are already running should continue producing carbon-free electricity? Well, I think it it has to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. Um, I think there, there, there may well be cases where extending nuclear licensing makes economic sense, um, where there's not significant problems as there, as there were in the case of Diablo Canyon with the once-through cooling rules about taking in seawater and returning it at, uh, at, at the right temperature. Um, but it, I think it is an economic issue. And what we found now is that renewable energy has fallen so dramatically in price that it is difficult for um, even an existing depreciated plant uh, if it requires refurbishment to compete in these markets. And I think that's why you're starting to see in, in um, many parts of the country, as nuclear plants come off their long-term contract and they're required to compete directly with wind and solar and other resources, they're just simply not cost-effective. Steve Malnight, uh, what would it have cost to keep Diablo Canyon, Canyon running? How much is PG&E saving by shutting that thing down? Well, I mean, when you look at it, there's a lot of factors involved in that. And, and as a company, you know, I think it's, it's fair to say we're, we're supportive of nuclear technology. Um, we believe Diablo Canyon is an incredibly valuable resource for California. It's generated power consistently, reliably, and safely, and clean for its entire operation, um, which is why when we looked at the, the best path forward, we recognized in California – it might not make the most sense uh, given the policies and choices that we've made in California. That doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't make sense in other jurisdictions where they have different resources and they've made different policy choices. But for us, we recognize in California, once through cooling, as Mark mentioned, is a priority um, for the state to mitigate those impacts. That was going to to be expensive um, to retrofit Diablo Canyon or to deal with mitigation costs associated with it. Um, Obviously, maintaining and reinvesting in the plant Uh, To run it for another 20 years would would cost money. But I think the biggest issue that challenges Diablo uh, in California from a cost perspective is the fact that, you know, nuclear power generates 24 hours a day, seven days a week consistently. And when we have a portfolio in the electric system today that involves a tremendous amount of clean but more intermittent resources, that baseload profile is just not the kind of resource mix that we really need for the future. We need more flexible resources that can ramp up and down. Um, And what we would see is that Diablo just would not be needed as much. We would not need as much of the generation out of Diablo, which would significantly impact uh, the costs. So, you know, we looked at all of that together and said, Diablo doesn't make the most sense for California. Uh, Nuclear power may make the most sense in many other jurisdictions where they don't have the same resources, but for here, that was the right choice. Mark Jacobson, your group, I take it, is pretty opposed universally to nuclear. Well, we look at it from a scientific 
point of view. We're not advocates one way or the other. But from a science point of view, well, we have to distinguish between new nuclear and existing nuclear. And then existing nuclear, we want to look at a case-by-case -case basis. When you're talking about new nuclear power, we have to consider the entire life cycle emissions, which are about six to 24 times higher in terms of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions and pollution than wind energy, for example. And half of that's due to the fact that you have to mine and refine uranium due to the entire life of the nuclear reactor. And that takes energy off the regular electric power grid, which is still primarily coal and gas. And then the other half is the fact that it takes so long to put up a new nuclear power plant. It takes between 10 and 19 years between planning and operation compared to two to five years for a wind or solar farm. That while you're waiting around, if you had a certain amount of money and you spend it on uh, a nuclear plant instead of a wind or solar farm, you're spending basically an extra you know, eight to, uh, you know, eight to 15, 14, 15 years waiting around running the regular electric power grid. And so those emissions have to be accounted for. And that's not, those aren't the only issues. You have nuclear weapons proliferation issues with new nuclear power plants going into countries that don't, don't have them. You have waste issues. You have meltdown issues. 1.5% uh, of all nuclear reactors ever built to date have melted down to some degree. And then you have costs. Right now, it's four times more expensive for a new nuclear plant compared to a wind farm. And so you're basically getting one-fourth the energy for the same amount of, of money, whether it's intermittent or not. And so it doesn't make sense for any new nuclear to go up. With a, regard to existing nuclear, it's a case, as Mark Farron says, it's a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, it really depends. Like in New York, the, um, New York voted, or not voted, the governor decided to uh, allow uh, three nu upstate nuclear plants to persist, but they were going to pay a subsidy of $7.6 billion to keep them going. And, but if it turns out if you actually took that same money, and you'll have to replace them anyway by 2028. So you'll need to spend money on wind and solar at that point anyway. So if you took that 7.6 billion, you'd get 60% lower carbon emissions if you bought the wind, used that to buy wind and solar today instead of just giving it to this, these, this company, the Exelon, it turned out. So there was no advantage of keeping those open uh, from a carbon point of view or a cost point of view. We're talking about the future of California energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Mark Farron from the California Independent System Operator. You just heard Mark Jacobson from Stanford University, and Steve Malnight is with PG&E. Uh, in 2014, we had David Crane here, CEO of NRG Energy. He came to Climate One and told us about a letter that he had written to shareholders that was quite emotional and different than most CEO letters on energy companies. He laid out a plan for NRG to get to zero carbon emissions for its electricity. Let's hear what David Crane had to say a couple of years ago. I was really trying to motivate the 10,500 people that work at NRG is that, yeah, you know, we're trying to make money, all that, but we're, <laughs> we're basically trying to, you know, save the world. Whether you're a, a, a public corporation, for-profit, a not-for-profit, a member, you know, a thought leader in society, the time is now. You know, the science is, is beyond dispute. Um, the excuse that we don't have the technology is just not true anymore. Uh, we have the technology. Uh, later on, David Crane uh, went on to say that uh, he talked about the risk of kind of sticking his neck out there, taking a moral stand uh, in a financial instrument. And he said, the worst thing that could happen to me is they could fire me. And if they fire me, they'd have to pay me even more money to go away. Um, <laughs> well, that's exactly what happened to David Crane. <clears throat> he got fired and he got some uh, money to uh, pay some money to go away. But, so Steve Malnight raises the question of how far a leader can get out in front of their shareholders in this industry and how you think about pushing the edge and thinking about shareholders want you to deliver that 
steady coupon-clipping return that uh, retirees typically relied on for utilities. Well, you know, I mean, I remember when I read David Crane's uh, letter, I thought, the first thought that went through my head is, uh, welcome to the club. Because I think in California, you know, the utilities have been singing the same message uh, consistently really since early 2000s when we supported AB 32 um, with the fact that, you know, the science is clear. We need to address climate change. The electric sector has a role to play. Let's get on with it. Um, So I think that the important thing, and I'm I'm not going to address, you know, David Crane's specific issue at at NRG. There's lots of, I'm sure, lots of issues. But how about pushing the industry forward? From the, you know, I think from the, you look at where California is at, Utilities are inherently companies that do well when our communities do well. When the state of California does well, PG&E will do well. And I think in California, we've clearly set out the leadership goal on on climate. We are a full partner in that, and we continue to move forward. That's actually good for the company. It's good for PG&E. It's good for our shareholders. It's good for our customers and good for the state. Um, So I believe you you can go a long way in leading on that front, when you draw the clear case for change, why that's a why that's a benefit to an investor in PG&E, to a customer of PG&E, and to the communities we live in. Mark Jacobson, there's lots of uh, new entrants into the electrical market. There's more competition for PG&Es. Um, you know, how is that going to help get to a 100? Is that going to slow things down, or uh, cities like San Diego, Marin, San Francisco now getting into the market? Is that going to slow or uh, accelerate change? Move toward 100. I'm not really sure I can answer that. I mean, we, we set sights on the end, end goal of 100% renewable energy and have kind of an inter- interim target. But we actually think each state and each county, each state, each country has to figure out the best way to get there. And so we're, you know, we think that if, the, if people believe in the end goal and people are committed to doing it, they'll find some way. They'll work through all the issues. So I can't really say specifically if one strategy is going to work faster or better than another. Mark Farron, you're part of the organization that runs the grid, has to manage all these electrons moving every which way every day, really complicated job. How do you see uh, new entrants and new competition? There's a lot more consumer choice now. We did, used to didn't have a choice. Now in San Francisco, you have a choice. Marin, you have a choice. Customer choice is coming to this market. Is that going to drive it to a cleaner market? Well, um, I, as, a, as a former regulator, um, I, I think looking at more uh, consumer choice uh, is a headache because it makes it more complicated. It's, it is, it is uh, much simpler to regulate a market that comprises three regional monopolies. And uh, that's the state of play now in, in California, but being eroded by uh, community choice, which is coming uh, across the state. Now, personally, I believe that uh, consumer choice can only be a good thing. And uh, what we are seeing increasingly in, in uh, communities that are looking at this as an option is they want cleaner energy than what's available on the grid. And uh, uh, so I'm a customer of Marine, Marine Clean Energy, and I run my electric car in 100% uh, clean energy. And uh, that's a choice I make. I pay a, an extra penny a kilowatt hour to do that. Uh, but that's, uh, I love having that option. And it's interesting, as, as you look at what's emerging across the state, there's some really very interesting, innovative work going on at the local community level. And one of the things that we're trying to do at the California Independent System Operator is tap into that and, and allow um, third parties who have um, various renewable assets on the grid to aggregate those assets together and bid them into the wholesale market. So we are uh, actively encouraging another route 
for renewable resources to get onto the grid. Steve Malnight, PG&E has, has tried to uh, stifle this competition. Do you now accept that, that this is happening uh, and that there'll be, consumers will have more choice and you're competing in a marketplace where you used to have sort of uh, your customers locked up? Well, I'm not sure I'm going to accept the premise of that uh, question, but I will say this. I think that, you know, from our perspective, we support our communities when they make choices to go to community choice aggregators. And one of the things I think is important, Mark, I appreciate that you're a, consum- you're a customer of Marin Clean Energy. You're a PG&E customer as well, um, because PG&E's core business is really about delivering those electrons to your house and making sure they're available and reliable whenever you need them, whenever they're there. Um, I think that the, the engaging customer choice in the marketplace, whether it's through uh, community choice aggregators or through customers who make choices to put solar on their rooftops like I did, those are all good things uh, for this marketplace in the long run. Because, frankly, for us to solve the problems we have from a climate perspective in the energy business, we need customers who care about their energy and are engaged and are making choices and are actively managing their energy use every day. When customers think it's not a big deal, it doesn't matter, um, we, we're set back in our, in our accomplishment of our goals. So we, um, we, we do not fear um, com- competition in any way here. Frankly, it's not exactly competition. PG&E doesn't make our profit from buying and selling electrons. Uh, as a company, we make our profit by investing in the grid that delivers it to Mark every day. Uh, we're talking about clean energy at Climate One. That's Steve Malnight from PG&E. We also have Mark Farron from the California Independent System Operator and Mark Jacobson from Stanford University. We're going to go to our lightning round. Uh, we ask each person a, a yes or no question, uh, starting with uh, Steve Malnight. Uh, yes or no, rich people in California breathe cleaner air than poor people. <laughs> um. I mean, I think that there are issues. There are issues we have to address in economically disadvantaged communities in the state. Yes, uh, um, Mark. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not good with one-word answers. <laughs> uh, Mark Farron, when Mike Peavy was president of the California Public Utilities Commission, the commission got too cozy with the electrical utilities they regulated. Yes or no? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Attorney General Kamala Harris is investigating possible criminal charges against Mike Peavy for private contact with a company he used to run. Um, uh, Steve Malnight, PG&E CEO Tony Early was brought in to clean up the mess created by his predecessor, Peter Darby, whose reign included the deadly San Bruno blast for which the company was recently convicted of six federal felonies. Tony was brought in to solve a lot of those issues, so yes. Uh, the cleanup uh, job is close to being finished and when, and PG, at PG&E, and PG&E will then hand over the reins to the current president, Geisha Williams. <laughs> they don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark Jacobson, oil industry executive Jay Precourt gave $30 million to Stanford to fund the university's Umbrella Institute for Energy Studies. ExxonMobil gave Stanford $100 million. The university's reliance on funding from fossil fuel interests compromises its research into climate and clean energy. In part, yes. Steve Melnight, in 2010, PG&E spent $40 million on a statewide ballot initiative that would have made it harder for communities to start supplying power in competition with electric monopolies, Prop 16. That alienated many PG&E supporters and was a mistake. Yes, Steve Malnight, uh, you mentioned earlier that PG&E supported AB 32, California's landmark climate law. 
So a question now for Steve Malnight. PG&E supports the extension of that landmark climate law known as uh, AB32. Are you talking about SB32? Do, do you support SB32? Um, as it was written, we thought there was more that needed to actually be done to extend cap and trade, but we clearly supported the governor's goal of 40% and felt that legislation needed to be passed to enable it. Okay. Mark Farron, electric utilities are being more cooperative in the transition to a cleaner economy than oil companies and refineries. Absolutely, yes. Mark Jacobson, PG&E is one of the cleanest electric utilities in the country. (laughs) 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 One of, yes. (laughs) I know that was hard. It's okay. (laughs) Begrudging praise. Uh, Mark Jacobson, electric utilities are dinosaurs dying a slow death. Uh, Yes. Yes, I think so. Yes. Mark Farron, professors who have never put concrete and metal in the ground overestimate how difficult it is to build energy systems. It's a lot harder than computer models suggest. Yes. (laughs) Mark Jacobson, Japan is 10 years ahead of the U.S. on using electric cars as storage for the grid. No. Mark Jacobson, electric uh, utility monopolies are the number one obstacle slowing down the United States in the transition to carbon-free power. No, not the number one. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Steve Steve Malnight, nuclear power is renewable power. Uh, No. Uh, Steve Malnight, opponents of nuclear power are ideological and not grounded in science. I think we all have disagreements. There's disagreements. There's reason disagreements on that point. Last question. Uh, Mark Farron, 100% clean power plays well in Hollywood, but it isn't grounded in reality. I don't think that's true. I think, I think we can get to 100% renewable. All right. How do we do? I think that's the end of our lightning round. We did it pretty well. <laughs> and now, here's a Climate One Minute. In California and a handful of other states, some households can now choose to get their power from local electric companies, also known as community choice aggregators. These offer a portfolio of renewable power options, and some claim to have reduced greenhouse gas emissions dramatically. Sounds good, but Matthew Friedman of the Utility Reform Network says it's still important to ask the right questions. I think what customers really want to know is, does their choice end up being meaningful? Does the decision to switch providers result in a change in the way that power is produced on the grid? Are there actually less carbon emissions? Is anything different because you made this choice? I think there the jury is out. There's a lot of talk about reducing carbon emissions or percentage of the portfolio coming from renewable resources. But so far, um, the vast majority of the transactions that have been done on behalf of customers of community choice aggregators have been short-term transactions from existing facilities that haven't actually changed any of the output on the system. So the long-term question for community choice aggregators is, does the grid look different because they're there, or is this just an exercise in folks taking credit for stuff that's already happening? And that's the open question. That's Matthew Friedman of the Utility Reform Network, a consumer advocacy group. He joined us in 2015. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. 
talking about clean energy in California, Climate One. We did a poll on Twitter today. Uh, do you think California already has the technology needed to get to 100% clean power? 250 votes split 50-50. Yeah. Half the people think we need more technology. Half the people think we need, have all we need. Steve Malnight, which is it? Do we have everything we need? We've got to deploy it, or do you have to create new innovation? No, I think we need new innovation. I think, you know, even as Mark alluded to, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, things that sit in the theory today that are very promising, um, but uh, I think we've got to prove them out and understand the complexity of actually integrating these things onto the grid and how you run the system to make sure we maintain the reliability that we need. Mark Jacobson, where does the new innovation need to happen? Where, where are the big breakthroughs that you see that need to happen to get to 100%? Well... Let me preface it. I think with existing technology, if you deploy it, you'll get new innovation along the way because deployment drops the cost. There's more money available for research, and so you can then... But we do not need a miracle new technology. So it's maybe fine-tuning existing technologies, using them on larger scales, especially these storage technologies that are really used in a lot of example places, but we've never had a need for these large-scale clean renewable energy storage before. But I think that the biggest barriers, if you're asking that, are really practical things like zoning for long-distance transmission, uh, getting offshore wind, floating offshore wind turbines. I mean, once you have floating offshore wind turbines commercialized, then the game is over because there's just endless amounts of offshore wind on the West Coast, East Coast, U.S., and around the world. So I think it's really deployment that will generate more uh, improvements of technologies, plus some... Uh, better policies that will put in place to speed up certain things like floating turbines and, and long-distance high-voltage direct current transmission. Mark Farron, you've worked in Silicon Valley in, in innovation. You've worked in Sacramento in, in regulation. Uh, what's the role of government and in, in, in private companies in, in driving this innovation that we're talking about? Well, um, I think the role of government is, is to set the rules, make them as clear as possible, and then try to get out of the way and let the innovation happen. Um, I think that's really the fastest way for, for this to come about. And, and just to, to, to dovetail what, uh, what Mark was just saying, I think there is, um, there's really not a need for some giant miracle breakthrough in the hardware space. I think the, the hard technology that we have around electricity generation, of course there are improvements that are happening all the time. Uh, wind turbines are getting more and more efficient, et cetera. But the basics of that, I think, are, are largely well understood. It's the soft stuff. It's the software piece of this. It's how it knits together, how it's integrated, how it's managed. I think that's the biggest obstacle, and I think that's where the biggest dividend will come in. And, uh, I mean, the good news in all that is that is, the, in a sense, the, spe- the specialty of Silicon Valley. And so uh, on, that, on those grounds, uh, I'm quite optimistic that as we lay the foundation from a policy standpoint and we get more hardware um, in the ground, as it were, um, and people begin to work on ways to uh, optimize that, to make it more efficient, to make it more resilient, uh, I think we're going to see some real dividends. Steve Malnight, uh, the smart grid, we talk about the grid. Uh, let's talk about that some more in terms of uh, what, ne- what it is and what needs to be done to make the grid smarter. That term is thrown a lot of, around a lot. I'm not sure people <laughs> really know what it means. Is the grid ready today for 100% or for more renewables? Uh, no, I don't think. I mean, I don't think it's ready today for that level. I think there is a significant amount of investment that we need to do 
um, to change the way the grid operates. I mean, we, we do have to remember the grid was built as a machine that transmitted power from you know, one large central station generating facility through high voltage, substation brings it to lower voltage, takes it to your home. There was not an envisioned world at that time that two-way power flows were going to happen. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago, and frankly, there are utilities in this country that don't know you're out of power until you call them and tell them you are. Um, that, that's not the case at PG&E, but it is the case in other parts of the utility, and it's not that far in our recent past. So um, when we talk about the smart grid, what do we mean? It's, it's fundamentally about turning that machine into a machine that you can monitor um, all along the system to understand the current operating conditions of the system, to understand what's happening, to understand what's happening on the customer side and on the generating side. It's about control. So it's about allowing the grid um, to use technology and innovation and, and automation to self-heal, to uh, move power and route power um, on its own, to quickly respond to the conditions that we're monitoring. Um, and it's really also about creating an information architecture and structure so that when a customer puts technology on their home, they can actually integrate it effectively so that we can do the things like Mark talked about earlier, uh, where if a customer has a power wall in their home or a solar system in their home, they can actually extract more value for that by delivering benefits to the overall grid in the system. That requires information, communication, and technology. Mark Farron, some Silicon Valley companies, Google tried to partner with utilities to, uh, they had something, Microsoft tried to partner with utilities on sharing data, didn't work out so well, and the rap from Silicon Valley companies is that utilities are slow, not very smart, agile uh, companies because they've been regulated to be consistent. They have, they have not been created to be innovative. Uh, mm -hmm. they were, they've been re regulated to be reliable, steady producers of electricity and cash flow for their investors. So the question is, how can innovation come to these big lumbering giants, and, and how's that going to happen? Right. Well, I mean, I, I think utilities, and, it, and it's not just the, the distribution utilities, it's also true to some extent of, of the transmission operators, such as the ISO, we are by nature conservative animals, right? We are dealing with an essential supply of a service, which you know, we all here in California know firsthand what happens if you, you know, mess up the system. And uh, uh, that can lead to uh, billions of dollars of costs and millions of customers being out of power and so on. So... I think there's, there's a real reason for being very conservative. But that's, that said, uh, I think there are things around... Uh, I mean, innovation is, is, is happening kind of whether the utilities like it or not. Um, there are third parties out there who are coming up with new approaches to uh, how consumers interact with their energy. Um, we have the, the largest manufacturing plant in the state of California makes electric cars, right? Didn't, didn't exist uh, five, six years ago. And uh, I think that is uh, um, increasingly going to be a gateway drug for, for innovation <laughs> across the sector. We have lots of users in the audience, I can tell. <laughs> yes. So I don't, I, you know, I, it is, it's undoubtedly the case that the utility sales cycle is very long and very slow. And I do think that we need to think about ways to, to speed that up. Uh, when I was at the Public Utilities Commission, I was a big fan of having pilot programs. Um, so get the utilities to test something out and see how it works. But we need to move beyond pilots. We need to move into, into actually uh, proving uh, these things out at scale. I think that is going to be 
really the, the, the challenge for the next few years. How do we do interesting innovation at a significant scale? And I think that's what we're going to see. Steve Manlight, there's about 100,000 plug-in cars in California. Uh, that's, that's growing. What's the role? How important are EVs to this electric future, to this clean energy push that the state is, is pushing? Well, I mean, you know, electric vehicles and, and the way that we go about cleaning up the transportation sector is vital for the state to achieve their objectives. We can't get there without cleaning up the transportation sector. Um, so it's incredibly important. I think that uh, there's also great opportunity to do it because, you know, as, as Mark was alluding to before, we have an electric system that is already incredibly clean and is getting cleaner. Um, and as I remind everyone, you know, your plug is far more ubiquitous than a gas station. Uh, so the transportation fueling infrastructure is really already well built out with the electric system um, to, to drive uh, us to electrify transportation. And that's going to help us really make, uh, make the significant change we need to achieve the climate goals in the state. You're just joining us. Steve Maldi is the Senior Vice President of PG&E. Our other guests today at Climate One are Mark Farron from the California Independent System Operator, the agency that runs the state electric grid, and Mark Jacobson from Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. So let's go to our questions at Climate One. Hi, this is from Mark Jacobson. Are we on track in California to match your goal for 80% and then 100% time-wise? And around the world, who's doing well and well, who isn't? Well, surprisingly, California... If you just look at the wind, water, and solar, which is our plan, is 25% in the electric power sector. So we're actually doing pretty well in the electric power sector. Governor Brown's goal is 50%. Our goal is 80% by 2030. Um, you know, it's pretty well, but I think, we, I think we can get beyond 50% by 2030. The other sectors, though, are lagging pretty far behind, so not so well. Um, worldwide, Norway is the furthest along in terms of installation of everything to get to 100% renewable energy. They have about 55% of everything they need. The United States, in comparison, has 3.7% of everything they need. China has like 3.1% or 3.2%. So there are some countries that are smaller that are doing much better. Small, oil-rich country leading the way. Let's go to our next question. <laughs> Hi, this is Jessica Lamb from ClimateWorks Foundation. Given that uh, grid energy mix, policy incentives, and utility business models will look different under a near-term 50% renewable energy scenario versus 100%, um, could you speak to what is being done or could be done to ensure compatibility between those two scenarios so that we ensure what we're doing now in the near and midterm will be compatible or sort of a glide path for that future 100% renewable energy goal? I'll take that. Mark Farron? I'm, 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 yeah, um, I have to say that's one of my biggest concerns about, um, you know, our, because we are investing a, a huge amount in, uh, in the grid. In the last 10 years, the rate base for the utilities in the state of California have doubled, and projections are that they will double again in the next 10 years. So this is a massive investment in hardware, and it's really essential that we look hard to make sure that we are not digging a deeper hole, that we're not, um, you know, we're not gilding uh, the, you know, the, the existing infrastructure and that we're actually building the sort of things that we're going to need for the grid of the future. So that is, I think, a, a genuine concern. Now, how do we go about that? I think it's really, uh, it comes down to the regulators looking carefully at, at incentives that the utilities have, um, creating an incentive for the utilities, not just to put steel in the ground, to invest in hardware and get a return on that, but also to invest in services that can be provided by third parties and getting a return on those services as well. And I think this is an area where, quite frankly, California is just beginning. Uh, the state of New York has 
really grabbed onto this in a, in a very impressive way in, in laying out their vision of how regulation is going to work in the 21st century. And I think there are many things that California can learn from the state of New York. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Thank you. Gary Latchaw from Cupertino. Uh, I'm going to ask about a different aspect of this military security. Ted Koppel's written a book called Lights Out, in which he documents pretty convincingly the susceptibility of our system, both from a cyber attack or even small uh, rifle attacks. Could each three of you give me how converting to renewables will either help or hinder this issue of military security? Steve Malnight, FBI, works with utilities on this thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of the primary risks that we, um, we look to in our sector and our industry. Um, we work very closely together as an industry. We work with the federal government. We work with um, the uh, organizations like the independent system operator across the country. Uh, I will say that, um, you know, to some degree, it's, a, it's an issue we have to deal with no matter how we generate electricity. Uh, and it's one that we have to look to uh, to share best practices and learn and continue to grow as an industry. I mean, I mean candidly, in this space, you know, um, we, we are often challenged with nation states looking to um, looking to exploit vulnerabilities in our system. And we've got to work together with the government and others to make sure we harden that system and secure it. There's an argument that a distributed grid with more points of generation is harder to defend than, than a few big assets that, that can be kind of hardened. And I, I would actually turn it around too. and say it's easier to defend. OK, there are more points of entry, but there's also the ability then to island. And so you don't have critical uh, pieces of infrastructure that cause a cascading effect. Harder so to take the whole thing down. Harder to take the whole thing down. There are okay. more points of entry, of course, and that's, that's, you know, that's the risk. But on the other hand, inherently, the structure is, is, uh, is more robust. Which is the whole point of the way, way the Internet was constructed <laughs> anyways. That's the whole org- yeah. architecture of the Internet. Mark Jacobson. I was just going to say, there's uh, you push for putting battery systems with solar together, and this is, in fact, Tesla is no longer Tesla Motors. It's Tesla because they've combined with SolarCity, and they're going to produce a single product where, in fact, a battery, uh, you know, the solar will be on your roof, and you'll have batteries together. So when you combine... When you actually have more systems where people can almost be self-reliant to some degree, uh, then that can reduce the risk as well. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. My name is Wendy Jones. First, I want to say thank you for your collaboration um, amongst all of your organizations. We're going to continue to need it, so please keep it up. Um, my question, I guess, is for Mark. Uh, you mentioned how renewables can address the issue of mining and extraction of fossil fuels. And I recently read a paper that you and a colleague um, had written about a, a similar issue related to renewables with uh, rare earth metals uh, elements and uh, plutonium and lithonium and who owns it in the world and how we're going to keep doing it. And it seemed to me that your answer was related to um, kind of banking on recyclable, recycling technologies of these uh, mining things that we need. And so I, I, I would like you to address that. Like how much are we solving one problem only to create another? Well, Mark, Mark Jacobson, I hear a lot. What about those batteries and electric cars? People yeah. really concerned about that. Yeah, well, I should first point out that the mining from fossil fuels is continuous forever. You have to keep mining natural gas. In fact, every year there are 20,000 new gas wells that are built, and you have to do in, in the U.S. there are 3.6 million of them just pockmarking the United States. So you versus one time when you're building a wind farm or solar panels, you do that one-time mining versus forever continuously. But having said that, you do need some, and for batteries, you do need lithium, you do need uh, neodymium for some permanent magnets and turbine generators, but not all. But these can be recycled. There are plenty of resources. You don't need to mine these 
forever as much. The, the orders, it's orders of magnitude less mining. So you, do it, you have to do it, but it's much, much less, much less impact on the environment. Talking about clean energy at Climate One, let's have our next question. My question is to Steve and, and former Commissioner uh, Farron. Uh, until there's a, a change in the profit structure or how PG&E and the other utilities get paid, um, much like the change in decoupling 35 years ago that enabled the boom in electri- uh, uh, energy efficiency and, and the success there, I think we need to change or think about or start talking about changing how do we help PG&E get off of its uh, profit reliance on its gas infrastructure. Until we solve that problem, we can't get PG&E and the other gas utilities full-throated support. Uh, Mark Farron, helping PG&E get off their hooked-on-gas profits. Uh, well, I, I, I agree with Steve that, that we're going to need gas for the next pick a period of time, 15, 20, 35 years. I hope it's lower. I hope it's less. Um, I have to say that... that uh, the, um, the, the leak at Aliso Canyon, which happened uh, at the end of last year, where uh, 5.4 billion cubic feet of uh, natural gas escaped in four months, that was a real eye-opener. And it, and it made us, I think, all realize how dependent we are on natural gas for our electricity sector and how damaging uh, leakages can be to the environment. So I think this is, is really a... a a, a, a key priority, and, and I think this, this uh, notion of electrifying everything is really absolutely the right thing. We need to be thinking about how do we get off fossil fuels as opposed to how do we transition around them. You asked the question earlier about oil companies. They're in the crosshairs, and they have pushed back very hard. Um, I hope we don't get the same response from the natural gas industry, because that is the way that the future is going to look, whether it's in 15, 35, 50 years. Let's go to our next question. Thank you. Abby Young with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. In the San Francisco Bay Area, we have over 65 local governments, cities and counties, that have adopted local climate action plans, and that's more than any other metropolitan area in the country. Um, What is the role of local and regional government in the Bay Area to help speed us along this pathway toward 100% clean energy? Mark Jacobson? I'll take that. So, I mean, there are already efforts by cities, not only in the Bay Area, like Palo Alto is an example, but around the country that have goals to go to 100% renewable energy. So there can't, a city can actually have such a goal and even pass ordinances. So, in fact, Palo Alto is thinking of passing an ordinance they're thinking about it, haven't done this yet, where they actually, all new construction cannot have gas go on the property because you don't need it anymore. So this is a, um, this is something that a city can do if they really want to go to 100%. They can look, in fact, we're working with the city to develop ways to look at all their, all the pollution, all from every sector and how to get rid of that. And actually, for most things, you can do it. There are existing appliances for everything in your home. There's nobody needs gas in their home. You have induction cooktop stoves, heat pumps for air and water heating, you have electric dryers. What do you need gas for? You don't need it to go in your house. And so you can do this throughout a city. And what do you do about, for example, um, cars from outside the city coming in who are, that are gasoline-powered cars? How do you uh, uh, inhibit those? Well, you don't create parking spots for them. Uh, let's go to our next audience question in Climate One. Hi, Phil Keyes with InterTrust Technologies. Question about the grid. I just I'd like to understand how you see how far we can get with the current grid by, you know, just putting on this layer of communications and computation 
towards the goal of 100% renewable. And once we've reached that point, what changes to the grid need to be made? Well, I'll just mention something. I mean, if you look at it on a large scale like the whole U.S., you definitely do need upgrades in transmission, particularly long-distance transmission. For example, you know, the best wind resources in the U.S. are offshore the coasts, but also in the Great Plains, which is like the Saudi Arabia of wind. And so you can actually, it's so cheap there, it's two cents a kilowatt hour with the production tax credit now and three and a half without it, that it's actually cheaper to transmit that energy to the East Coast right now than even offshore wind. So upgrading uh, long distance transmission is certainly something that would be beneficial. But so I don't think you should wait till the end to upgrade long distance transmission. I think that should be um, do, happen now. I should point out though that in Texas, there was an example I just read. In Texas, just like four years ago, 16% of all the wind energy was, uh, was basically not used. It was curtailed because it didn't have enough transmission. And this last year, 2015, that dropped to 1%. So instead of wasting 16% of the electricity, only 1% is now because they upgraded the transmission system in just a few years. Mark Jacobson's professor at Stanford University. Our other guests today, Climate One, are Mark Farron, state regulator, operator of the uh, electric grid, and Steve Malnight from PG&E. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our next question. Hi, I'm Candace Hyde-Wong, and I'm with the League of Women Voters in Berkeley, Albany, and Emeryville. And we're concentrating, my concentration is on building energy upgrade, which uh, you spoke to a little bit about. But we have so many homes in California that would have inadequate electrical services, inadequate wiring, very expensive to upgrade homes, uh, rental units. It will take probably billions of dollars. How will we get that money some people can afford it, but m- many people will not. Steve Malnight, a lot of efficiency gains in California, yet the, the best thing you can do before solar is seal your home and, and make it more efficient. But that's not as sexy, and it's, some people don't know how to do it or how to pay for it. Well, it still is vitally important, and I do think we have to, um, to your point, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be invested in not just the grid itself, but also in our homes, um, as we, we talked about the gas transition earlier as well. Um, we have to look for every available way to get that to happen. Um, we do that through policy. We do that through incentive structures. We do that through creating innovative financing vehicles. Um, but we don't want to lose sight of the fact that energy efficiency really should be the first thing we do, is to look at the existing building stock, which is if you know Wyoming's the Saudi Arabia of wind, I might say existing building stock is the Saudi Arabia of energy efficiency. There is so much opportunity for us to go out and capture uh, better energy efficiency in the existing buildings. We've got we to gotta go after it. We, are, we have to wrap up. I want to end by asking each of you quickly, what gives you hope? What gives you fear? Thinking about the climate challenge in front of us. Mark Jacobson. Well, what gives me hope is if we do, if we can get to 100% clean renewable energy, then by 2050, uh, we found through simulations of CO carbon dioxide that by 2100, we can get... Uh, between 350, 400 parts per million. So there is hope, and then the temperature will lag behind that. But we can solve the problem if we put our mind to it. The problem is if we don't put our mind to it full throttle and actually get to 100% by then, then you know all bets are off the table and things will just get worse. So the problem, the problem really is from the climate point of view that it's much worse than people think because half of all global warming is being hidden by air pollution particles in the worldwide. 
So if we actually cleaned up all air pollution particles, all of a sudden we've doubled the amount of warming. So this means that we have to eliminate not only the pollutants that cause the particles, but the greenhouse gases simultaneously if we want any hope to actually reduce the climate problem. So it's such a serious problem, and most people don't take it so seriously. And, but looking at the problem that you know, we really need to go to this 100%. There's no other solution to the, to the climate problem. It really needs to be done. But the thing is, it can be done with existing technologies put to scale. Steve Melnight, hope and fear. Well, from a hope perspective, I, uh, I was very fortunate to, uh, along with Tony Early, go to Paris and the climate uh, conference as a part of the California delegation and tell the story of California. And I think what gives me hope is that uh, it's, it's very clear that um, I think we have, we may not be going as fast as we might all want, but that debate about should we go at all is kind of over. And we are committed. There's, there is um, ideas coming from all over. I saw sub-regional organizations and sub-national organizations talking about the innovation and creativity. I saw um, people from all over the world talking about it. And I came back uh, truly inspired and very hopeful that, um, that we're going we're gonna to accomplish this goal. The thing that gives me some sense of fear um, I will say, I mean, in California, I'd mentioned this earlier, I think we have an incredibly important role to play on demonstrating the leadership path. It's vitally important that we get it right. It's vitally important that we don't lose sight of making sure every California customer can come along because if we leave people behind here, it's not going to be sustainable. We've got to make sure we keep focus on the cost, the affordability for our customers, that people can both pay for it and breathe the clean air um, and I, I, I fear that um, if we lose sight, we lose our opportunity to lead. Mark Farron, hope and fear. Uh, I'll start with the fear. Um, and when I was appointed to the Public Utilities Commission, I remember Governor Brown looking at me and saying, don't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, that's the thing that worries me. Uh, um, like Steve, um, if, if, if this gets messed up, and particularly if it's ascribed to renewable energy, we could set things back by years or decades. So I think it is vitally important that we, that we make these changes, that we're bold, but that we don't screw it up. Uh, in terms of hope, uh, well, I, my two kids are sitting in the second row here. I think that's the thing that gives me the greatest hope, not just those two. But, <laughs> but if you look... No pressure, my, kids. <laughs> no pressure, kids. <laughs> Keep studying. Um, <laughs> But if you, if you look at uh, voters under 30, their number one concern is around climate. And I think that is where the, you know, the next generation is going to need to really push the political process to get off the dime and start making real changes from a policy standpoint to move us where we need to go. We've been listening at Climate One to Mark Farron, a member of the California Independent System Operator, Mark Jacobson, Professor of Engineering and Environmental Engineering at Stanford, and Steve Malnight, Senior Vice President of PG&E. I'm Greg Dalton. Our thanks to the audience here in the room online. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One and listen to podcasts and iTunes. Thank you all for coming and for listening. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.